0: This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith.
1: We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change and thankfully they can change for the better, but not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang related and racist tattoos for free and there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started.
2: I helped started. I'm not gonna take all the credit for it because it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face and he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them and uh he was will- and he was willing to pay, you know, but what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger and, and it 's not going to do what you want it to do and so we discussed lasers, but the bottom line was I really could see the hurt you know that this guy was going through because he had done this you know gotten these tattoos, and that he needed he just wanted to uh, his job and not have people follow him or you know and and I could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made I think that was on January something it was mid January um and we basically said if you have hate or uh, racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos That we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing you, you know, the post you just did is going viral, and she thought, she was like, how did I get a virus? You know, like, she didn't even know (laughs) what viral was.
1: So they needed some help.
2: Once that happened, I'd say, you know, we probably got thousand uh, inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that that there was a need, and we started Redemption Inc. Um, We had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption, Inc., because it was, it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and, um, it just, and, and then that took off, actually.
1: This Random Act of Kindness is changing people's lives giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You service? know,
2: I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that, that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling, or like a lot of them are, are, are scared because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me, and a few of them even travel from far away so far so and by the way so far i 've helped personally helped twenty two people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two yeah they're at first they 're a little scared, but then once I get them you know in my chair, I talk to them like people and and you know i I get to hear the story behind it, and most of them were i would have to say you know ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. The sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not... With somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim?
1: When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards?
2: Yeah, it's A couple of them, yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20 something years of tattooing. You know, people, people do feel that they have to, I guess. And so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody. And so. You know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I, like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it.
1: Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they
2: come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable, and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not. We're here to you know fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media. If they don't want to be involved in that, then I. Their my first priority is definitely their safety.
0: And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on our American stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story. And by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety.
2: A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true, you know, blood in, blood out. Like A lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like Like, we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but... We make sure that, hey, we're here. Here's my hand.
1: Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property.
2: So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff. And, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's uh, uh, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or it it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, (laughs) you know, like, you don't tattoo and say property of, like, nobody should be property of anybody. And, and, you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to, you know, it's almost out of a a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame uh, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake
1: more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar
2: I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, they're the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same, and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody, and, um, you know. Of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them. You know, if they want to tell me, then they can. But we don't. I don't make anybody say anything. You know, because they've already been judged enough. I have so far seeing a couple of the people that i've tattooed moved on and, and you know they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had like power on his arms and one of the kids brandon that i tattooed engaged now and get ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo it was really fun he, he traveled a little bit to uh come see us, but he was extremely, actually I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice and, and, you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he he explained how he felt the shame of of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, And, and again, who wants to be a victim?
1: And these people are truly making attempts to change, but... Unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced.
2: It, it, it's all been uh, pretty fun and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that you know, they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives.
1: And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you?
2: Absolutely, I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just wow, <laughs> like even the the stuff going viral, and then you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because you know not every. The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that that these people believe them. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, forgiving somebody is, is more important, you know, And and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago?
1: Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone?
2: It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media. Some some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions that it, it kind of got to me, and, and you know, and, it, and kind of it kind of gave me a wow moment.
1: Well, you're changing lives.
2: You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, like, these people. These people, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I I shouldn't be getting credit for the the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles let's just say that i I, i'm comfortable with that (laughs) i help them remove obstacles they i I believe that the people that uh and i truly really believe that that they've already done what they needed to do i didn't help them change they did it themselves i've tried to stay as humble as i possibly can like you know i have had people come up to me and You know, like, oh, my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and and it it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face. But like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like, (laughs) I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people. and, And when, in fact, they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that. Someone has to do it.
1: Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved?
2: Yes, actually, yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, In fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state, like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate uh, that, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be – give them a a good service. So we actually look look at their websites, look at their work, and, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe.
1: We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption, Inc., whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories.
0: And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave... And help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys' inmates. My goodness, you gotta choose. Sometimes not in a gang, you're gonna get beat. You gotta pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemption Inc., and that's INK org. And to hear all that we do, go to our Dave Cutlip Story. Redemption Inc. Story here on our American stories. stories and next we bring you the story of martin licious and his company tempest tours an unconventional texas-based tour company
3: storm chasers those wild individuals who ride around in search of the weather most people try to avoid what kind of person does it take to do this well let's find out with martin licious
4: well, i first became interested in uh severe weather growing up in North Texas where we have big storms on a regular basis. When I was a kid, probably about four or five years old, um, we would have storms that come through that uh, the lightning would hit so close to our house that our whole house would shake. Also, right down the street from our house was a TV station called WBAP-TV. Harold Taft was the meteorologist on staff and uh, Harold is actually credited with uh, creating the American weathercast, TV weathercast. Before him, they would simply read the text. They'd re- read the, uh, the forecast off a piece of paper. And then he, uh, being a, a full-blown meteorologist, decided to use maps to describe to the viewers what was happening.
5: Uh, believe me, we're going to. Uh,
2: the computer will paint this on. Kind of fun to watch it, so let's just do that for a second. See, all the color comes on, all the symbols. All right, still getting a little light uh,
5: freezing drizzle up here in uh, Gage, Oklahoma.
4: And so I'd watch him a lot, and uh, they had this old-fashioned black-and-white radar, and he'd show that quite a bit as well. And uh, I think that was kind of when I really became interested in weather. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, I asked my... Mom, if I could build a weather station on top of the uh, of our house, she said, "Sure, just be careful." And uh, I started plotting storms as they came through uh, on a map. And I entered a science fair and uh, won the competition. I built a 3D model of a supercell thunderstorm. And the winner is. Eventually, I got a car and uh, decided that I'd go out and film storms. And then, about the same time that I did that, uh, I heard that there was these guys called storm chasers, and I met some of them. And then from there, that point on, I I did it quite a bit.
3: Martin eventually founded Tempest Tours, a company that lets you book storm chasing expeditions like cruises.
4: That came about in, we started it in 2000, I'd say around 1999, I decided I was going to do it um, because... I didn't think that, I didn't say to myself, let's start a storm-chasing tour company. I just uh, was receiving a lot of requests from regular, normal people uh, to go storm-chasing with me, and they were usually not able to go because of work, so I thought, what if we created tours, and then we put out the schedule a year in advance, people could get off work and actually go, and that's when uh, Tempest Tours was born, uh, back around 2000. You know, storm chasing is kind of like fishing. Um, You know, there's a good time of year to go fishing, right? Um, But you go out and you go out several days fishing and some days are good and some days are not good. So it's a lot like that. Um, On a tour, you know, they're typically run four to 11 days in length. And of course, the longer the tour, the greater chance of seeing good storms. Just like if you went on an 11-day fishing trip versus a, a four-day fishing trip. Um, basically, they get up in the morning. We tell the guests when to meet us. Uh, we stay at motels, of course, and we'll meet in um, the lobby or, or somewhere. And we'll do a little we- a weather briefing and uh, tell them what we we show the maps and so forth, and we tell them why we're going there, what we can expect that day. Then we all load up, head to that target, uh, wait for storms to develop, and then uh, we, we track the one that we feel has the greatest potential of producing a tornado or just being a really good supercell. And you know, sometimes you'll have three or four storms form in your target area, and you have to be very careful to put pick this the right one and so we kind of sometimes hold back a little bit and wait until the best one what we think will be the best one to form we've been very successful at that and then we track it and uh, if it's not moving too fast we're able to stop several times and take pictures of it including tornadoes and lightning and so forth which you can see uh, at our website you know people a common question that people ask is how close do we get and i say close enough to take great pictures but far enough to be safe. So the best way to see how close we get is to go to our website or go to our Facebook page and just see the pictures that we've taken and some of our guests have taken, and you can get a good idea of how close we get.
6: Now while they're in the van, along the way there are uh, there's a screen in the van, and so they're watching what the tour director is doing, and they're seeing, you know, the models develop.
3: That's Kim George, Tempest Tour's Customer Relations Manager.
6: So he will be explaining those along the way, saying this is what the storm is doing, this is where we need to be. And so he will constantly keep them updated as they are going towards the target. And so they will wait, but when they actually get to visually see the storm, you know, coming up in the foreground, everybody gets very excited. So we get um, closer to the storm, we track it. Sometimes you have to wait a little while, but most of the time you're going straight towards the storm. Most storms develop in the afternoon. And um, once you are on the storm, then uh, depending on how the storm is moving, you position and you reposition and you reposition again because storms don't stand still most of the time. (laughs) When we're chasing a storm, we follow it till it's end or till you lose the light. And sometimes that'll happen. And if you can't chase it when it's dark. Sometimes they do. It depends on the storm if it's developing tornadoes. sometimes we have, we did this past year, uh, chase a storm even after dark and they actually saw some nighttime tornadoes which was um, very good for the group. They thought that was amazing and the only reason you can see them is because the lightning, when it strikes you can actually see the tornadoes below the storm. So that's basically a typical day and then we uh, get lodging nearby and they stay somewhere for the night, and then they also are developing a plan to, you know, begin that all over again the next day. We are not a luxury tour company. <laughs> uh, we have to tell them that honestly. You know, when you're out chasing, and anybody who does that would know, uh, you'll be in Po Dunkey's America somewhere. And there's not a lot of options when it comes to places to stay. And sometimes there's not a lot of options for places to eat. And so you do the best you can with the environment that you're in. And we are very good about finding places that you can stay. But every once in a while, you know, that Motel 6, it may be the only place that you can stay for the night. So you do. Uh, because the important thing is not the luxury of what we do; it's the chasing itself, and, and our guests do realize that that you can't always be in, you know, a really swanky hotel. But that's not why you go to chase with us. You just need a bed, you need a place to get some rest, and then you can start the next day fresh.
4: On a down day, uh, we will. Uh head towards the next day's target so a down day may be followed by a severe weather potential day so we'll head towards that target and on the way stop at places that are interesting.
6: Things that you know I've seen since I've been with the company that I never knew existed. There is a place in Kansas that's called um, Monument Rock and it's just this sandstone formation in the middle of nowhere and you go on it and it's just crazy. Uh, It
4: could be the Badlands in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Paladuro Canyon in the Texas Panhandle, or you might stop at a weather service office and take a tour. So we're always doing something interesting uh, every single day. We know this is our guest's uh, vacation time, they want to see something interesting.
6: We try to make it special when we're not on a storm. I mean, they're all coming for the storms. I mean, they don't really care about the other ones if they have a storm to follow. (laughs) So, but yeah, we try to make the times that we're not, you know, in a hard chase for the storm. We try to make those um, times as memorable as we can.
0: And you are listening to Martin Licious and Kim George. And Martin is the founder of Tempest Tours. And Kim works there in the customer relations department. And if you want to see a storm, well, then Tempest Tours is the place to go. And TempestTours.com is the website address, TempestTours.com. And go on there and take a look at the gallery section and see what customers have seen. And so if you want to get up and close to a tornado, and I've always wanted to see one, we broadcast south of Memphis here in Oxford, Mississippi. Been here about a dozen years, probably about 15 Uh, tornado warnings and storm shelter trips. But I'm always popping my head out to see one, and it just doesn't happen. One came within about uh, five miles of our town, cut across Highway 6, and then ultimately made its way up to Birmingham and up to Tuscaloosa, one of the big killers of all time, one of the worst tornadoes of all time in American history. So again, Martin Licious with Tempest Tours, his story, and so many Americans who are just fascinated by, well, just turbulence and tough weather. Martin's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and as you know we tell stories about everything here but our very favorite stories well they come from our nation's warriors and on the 5th of December in 2012 Afghan Taliban fighters known for killing and kidnapping for ransom got their hands on an American civilian doctor working with an aid organization US intelligence zeroed in on where dr. Joseph was being held and a rescue team was soon on the way. Helicopters inserted the seals into the mountainous region, and the men hiked for more than four hours in the dark to reach their target. For what happened next, then-Senior Chief Edward C. Byers, Jr. would earn our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Here is the citation.
7: The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, has taken pleasure in awarding the Medal of Honor to Chief Special Warfare Operator C. Air Land, Edward C. Byers, Jr., for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as a hostage rescue force team member in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 8 to 9, December 2012. As the rescue force approached the target building, an enemy sentry detected them and darted inside to alert his fellow captors. The sentry quickly reemerged, and the lead assaulter attempted to neutralize him. Chief Byers with his team sprinted to the door of the target building. As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path for the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers Completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room During the ensuing hand-to-hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed the man was not the hostage and engaged him As other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it He jumped atop the American hostage And shielded him from the high volume of fire Within the small room While covering the hostage with his body Chief Byers immobilized another guard With his bare hands And restrained the guard Until a teammate could eliminate him His bold and decisive actions under fire Saved the lives of the hostage And several of his teammates By his undaunted courage Intrepid fighting spirit And unwavering devotion to duty In the face of near certain death Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service.
0: That first American assaulter who was mortally wounded was 28 year old Nick Check. After making sure that all of the hostiles were down and the American hostage was safe, Chief Byers tried desperately to resuscitate his brother both on the ground and throughout their 40 minute long flight back to their base. Check was posthumously awarded our nation's second-highest award for valor, the Navy Cross. And Chief Byers, as you heard, earned the Medal of Honor. Here is Chief Byers, who, by the way, remained on active duty, addressing a crowd gathered to induct him into the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. I've realized throughout my life that time is the most precious commodity you have, and I sincerely thank you all for your time today. I will speak just long enough to give credit and recognition to the heroes in my life and to those who deserve to know that they are the reason that I'm standing here today. Those heroes are my family, my faith and the brotherhood. Family is the reason I'm able to do this job. And it's also the reason to live and to return home safely. Madison, my incredible wife. Hannah, my beautiful daughter. This could not have been possible without your resiliency and love. Your strength in my absence is something I've always admired and respected. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I will never forget how each time I returned home from long times away, you'd be waiting to pick me up, sometimes in the middle of the night, waiting to give me a hug and a kiss, especially you, Hannah. I would not be the man I am if it were not for the two of you. You are my heroes. I love you. Hand in hand with my family is my faith. While it has had a more quiet aspect of my life, it has always played a significant role. I grew up Catholic and continue to grow in my faith, thanks especially to my brother, Trevor, who taught me to turn my heart and soul towards Christ when I have strayed or lost my way. Prayer has always provided calm amidst chaos for me. On my first deployment to Iraq some 11 years ago, I arrived in country and I saw another seal standing there with a St. Michael, the archangel patch on his shoulder. I'm not sure what drew me to it, but I walked up to him and asked him if I could have it. He was leaving the combat zone and made it through a safe deployment. He handed it to me without hesitation. I've worn a patch on my kit on every single mission I've ever been a part of. And I prayed the St. Michael prayer while moving in the toughest missions I've faced. And it does start by saying, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection. On that day in December 2012, the day you heard recounted several times about my team and the way we carried out the mission to rescue an American hostage. On that day, just like every day, I prayed. I prayed on the way to my target. And again, I prayed over my brother, Nicholas Chek, for his soul as he gave his life to save another American. Nick Chek was a warrior, a brother, and a friend. I know I said this repeatedly since this has started, but this award is inseparable from his death. Nick embodied the brotherhood. Nick embodied what it meant to be a Navy SEAL. He was hard as nails, resilient. He had a never quit, never fail mentality. Nick, along with the rest of our team, carried out some of the most difficult and dangerous missions our nation could have asked us to do. Nicholas Czech paid the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved. On the battlefield, because this is what brothers do, they will lay down your life for you if they have to. We are again reminded this morning of the continued sacrifices the men and women of our nation make, the hotel where many of us sustain overlooks Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Arlington National Cemetery. I, along with many of my teammates, have been to many funerals at Arlington, probably more than we should at our age and our life. We've seen too many good men buried so many may ask, what is it that keeps you going? How are you standing here after such loss? The answer is undoubtedly without question, the brotherhood. I saved the brotherhood for last. I want to emphasize that I'm no different than any one of my teammates. I'm certain that any one of them would have taken the same exact actions I did that day. I've seen countless heroic acts in my time working with the nation's most elite operators. I feel a sense of responsibility with the recognition that has been bestowed upon me. My brothers who are still fighting, who are still in the shadows, deserve to share the spotlight where we are a community of quiet professionals. And those men would not expect or seek recognition for their actions. I proudly wear this trident to represent The brotherhood and now i've been welcomed into another group of exceptional military heroes i look at the names in the hall of heroes and to the brave men right in front of me here and realize a tremendous amount of bravery that flows through our american veins freedom is in large part paid by blood sweat and tears i've never imagined my life would leave me here i'm truly humbled and honored to represent the Navy and the Naval Special Warfare community. My only desire is that my representation is something my brothers, who I served with, would be proud of. Because the deed is all, not the glory. May God bless you, and may St. Michael the Archangel protect our warriors in battle, along with the Brotherhood. Thank you.
0: And you were listening to Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers Jr. And that's what our fighting men sound like. The humility, it's there, you can hear it. He doesn't even want to be there. He really doesn't. He has to be, because it's an order. But he knows that he doesn't act alone. And the Brotherhood is the reason. Talk to any of these guys. It's more than country, actually. You really get to know them. Obviously, they love their country. But what they do and why they do it, it's because their brother would have done it, too. And It's why we always cry when we hear these stories. The deed is all, not the glory. And we could say that every day before we start the day, and we'd all have better lives. Especially in this Instagram, Facebook fame culture, it's so empty, and we all know it. Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers' story, every soldier's story, here on our American story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week, transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter, send us your email address, and we'll give you our five best stories each week. And we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Shaw. U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California.
5: It's called the L.A. speed story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being an being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. <laughs> and you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown L.A. from Tucson. We're at eighty nine thousand feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in the air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen and L.A. Center is controlling. They control all. When you fly southwest there, the guys controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now, there's controllers all over the country. Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS day, some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, L.A. Center, Cessna, November Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares, get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed readout for us? And Senator likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me, God? Please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show sure you 121.2 zero knots on the ground? And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. Center, Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator in that million-dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads-up display. Why is he calling center to broadcast his speed? I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Testify two, we show you 620, 620, zero knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an, an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12 year old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> And I thought, oh no, wait! Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I want—no, it, it's the Navy. that must die. it must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I will upset Walter. And I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. In his best innocent voice. LA Center, Aspen three zero. Have you got a ground speed radar for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on freak like, oh the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's it's just a pilot thing. But center had to give you that same voice. Aspen three zero, we show you one thousand nine hundred and ninety-two knots. <laughs> Cross the ground. What I knew was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, "Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block.
0: And what a voice, and that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories, bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's US Air Force retired pilot Brian Schul telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, Stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories. Continue with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Better Health Care at Lower Cost series, sponsored by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on an Australian immigrant that you likely don't know, named Dr. Peter Farrell, but you'll be glad to have met him.
8: I ended up doing a PhD because I thought I wanted to be an academic, which I did for about 10 years until I got sick of academia you know it's a bit like bureaucracy that which turns energy into solid waste and the further up you go within the hierarchy the more time you spend on administrative stuff and the less you spend doing what you're trained to do and you get into politics and sometimes the politics is such that it impacts what you're trying to do it's a cancer what was good in my case is that Baxter approached me a 10 billion dollar
9: healthcare company
8: and said hey look we want someone to set up and run R&D in Southeast Asia so i went to live in tokyo a guy that was working with me said uh, look there's this guy his name is Colin Sullivan and he's treating snoring sickness with a reverse vacuum cleaner and i mean i kind of rolled on my back like a sprayed cockroach i said what he said snoring, well, you know it's the butt of jokes, and he said, "No, no, go see this guy oh, seriously." So I sat down with him, and he said, "I hear you're a skeptic. I'm going to show you a video." And this is long before YouTube. He popped this tape in, and there's this guy like a sumo wrestler on his back in a big bulbous mass, and going, <laughs> and he said, "That's an apnea." Which means without breath. The guy's upper airway is closed. Of course, gravity, your tongue goes back in your pharynx. And then if you've got a lot of fatty tissue around there, it's <laughs> you'll pull it closed.
9: Which causes the snoring as oxygen
8: struggling to make its way to the lungs. And then what wakes you is the brain detects oxygen level. It's falling. And so once the brain goes, holy shit!" You know, the oxygen level's too low for life to be supported, so the brain and the heart have to be protected because you've got literally seconds, like a minute, 90 seconds, you're basically dead if the brain and the heart are starved of oxygen. So you get this fright response. You've got to get more blood into both organs.
9: Healthy blood is almost all oxygen.
8: And everything else gets shut down acutely. And it could be four, 500 times a night. Do you think that's good for you? Actually, it isn't. So what happens is the whole of the body's biochemistry gets completely screwed up. And the longer you keep going with this, obviously the worse it is. And at some point, you'll reach the point where it's irreversible. Then you're really in deep shit. And, you know, when I went to see this guy, Sullivan, and he showed me um, this guy going, he said, do you think that's good for him? And I said, hmm. I said, let's move to the next question, can we? Anyway, then he slapped this Darth Vader mask on this guy, and it was a bespoke mask. He had a Swiss engineer making these masks individually. And these masks were like, you know, you'd put it on, and you'd say, still leaking? How's that? Still leaking? And this was the guy's insight. Nobody liked to have this full face mask on, and Colin said, you know what? I think we can do it with just a nasal mask, and everybody said, oh, bullshit. All you're doing is... When the person breathes and creates negative pressure, you're countering it. With what's called
9: positive airway pressure, the pumping of air into the airway of the lungs, which keeps them open.
8: And so the patient breathes normally. So the only way you can get injured is to pick the machine up and smash the guy over the head with it. So this is safer than an aspirin. I'm thinking, wow. So I said to Colin, how many people do you think suffer from this? And he said, oh, I, I don't have any idea, but he said, it's at least 2% of the population. And we're coming from Baxter, which had a billion dollar business in the dialysis area, where there was less than 0.2%. So I said, gee, you know, as an MIT educated engineer, I went 0.2, 2 billion, 10 billion. I said, even if it's only 5 billion, that's a big market. So I went back to Baxter's Respiratory Home Care Division I funded it on Baxter's behalf and a year later they sold off the division I'm literally reading in this trade publication called Clinica, Baxter sells off Respiratory Home Care Division
9: Baxter hasn't his company? (laughs) Didn't they give him any warning that this was coming?
8: No, 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 I was only like in the top 64% of employees out of at least 6,000 but I thought, oh my God. I knew that if we didn't do something about it, that it was gonna die in its bum. And a lot of people would have been let down. And I thought, you know what? I thought my time with Baxter was not likely to be that much longer because my boss got fired and he should have been, he was a cheerleader. You know, the guy put his feet up in a desk, smoked a cigar and say, how's it gone, Pete? Great, Lawrence. And he'd say, keep it going and then that I wouldn't see him again for three months. But then I got this snotty-nosed kid whose father was on the board of Baxter. Lester Knight was the guy, and if I had a disagreement with Lester, and I didn't have much respect for the guy, I mean, it, it, look, he was an okay guy, but, but he didn't have experience, and I suddenly ended up with him as a boss. And I thought, gee, how's that gonna work out? Probably not well for me. So I thought it's not that big a deal if we close down the Baxter Center for Medical Research and we put our efforts into ResMed.
9: The name of this business that addresses sleep apnea.
8: As long as I could cut a deal with Baxter. So the way it turned out is I called the president of Baxter, Jim Tobin. He was a decision maker. I'll give him that. He'd run over his grandmother if it it helped him. And Jim was, you know, he's a bright guy, Harvard, I couldn't figure out how Baxter could grow the way they did because nearly all the hierarchy were Harvard MBAs with no technical background. Now I'm a great believer that if you're in a technical business you do have to know what a pipette looks like and you've got to have been in a lab, for example. But these guys were government majors, economics majors, history majors with Harvard MBAs and they all are. I mean, how are they making decisions, these guys? You know. Anyway, uh, they just bought American Hospital Supply for three billion to turn Baxter into a five billion dollar company, and I'm going to them and saying, "Hey, this could be ten million dollar business in three years." And they're yawning. Like, GP, great, um, fantastic." They were yawning. And so they sold Resmed to Peter. And the first year, which was '89-'90, we did a million dollars in revenues and we lost. 250,000. The next year we did two million, and we lost 150. So we're 400,000 in the tank. If you're building business, you're gonna lose money. You know, you have gotta spend money to make money. I was, in fact, if anything elated, it could have been half a million, you know what I mean? And then the third year we did four million and made 400,000 at the bottom line. I had no idea how big this was, and it just got bigger. You could add up HIV, AIDS, malaria and so forth, add them all up and you wouldn't reach the carnage caused by undiagnosed and therefore untreated sleep apnea. Fifty percent of men and twenty-three percent of women have it. In the U.S. it's around ten percent have been diagnosed and therefore treated. Before ResMed, how many folks were
9: actually being diagnosed and treated? Oh
8: a handful, I mean a handful of people, I mean it was not even a percentage, no, but I mean that's, that's you know, you're going back to 1989, 30 years ago, oh, it was, you say what, snort what, snort what, sleep what, huh? Our revenues are around $2.5 billion. we have roughly 55% of the world's market, and people say to me... God, you think Baxter were all upset about that? I said, no. Is this another transaction?
0: It's just another transaction. And innovators, risk takers, and people with the practical knowledge to get it done, not fancy degrees from fancy schools having nothing to do with the actual product. You're listening to Dr. Peter Farrell's story. And a dear friend of mine, Tom in Irving, Texas, Tom Trattup, Well, he had had sleep apnea for the longest time, and what it did to his life and his marriage and that this technology was around to save him and really save his marriage, his family life, and everything else. When we come back, we're going to learn more about this remarkable story, this remarkable company, and my goodness, this really remarkable guy and what a talker he is. More with Dr. Peter Farrell, his story here on Our American Stories. We're back with our American stories and Dr. Peter Farrell's story of discovering a physician named Colin Sullivan who invented this crazy device to treat sleep apnea that we now know as the CPAP machine and only because Peter brought it to the world.
8: I mean, you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurship is about huge risk taking. Well, entrepreneurship is about minimizing risk and seizing opportunity. It's completely the opposite. You're doing it because you think you can make it, not because you think you're going to lose your shirt. You're trying to minimize the risk of losing your shirt. And then innovation only occurs when somebody writes a check. Unless it's delivered to the marketplace and somebody says, this is solving a problem, which I think is important, and I'm going to write you a check because I think it's going to help solve the problem. That's what innovation's about. It's not about creativity and imagination. It requires creativity and imagination, otherwise you don't get to something that somebody else needs and is willing to pay for. So, Colin showed me this Darth Vader thing with this mask that you basically had to squeeze your face in. And then you had this machine that you could have run your swimming pool on and it sounded like a freight train. And he said, I should emphasize this is a treatment, it's not a cure. The guy has to wear that every night. And I said, oh, you're kidding. He said, I'm not kidding. And he said, in fact, I'm going to bring this patient in and I want you to talk to him. His name is Eddie Merck. I said, okay. So he brings in Eddie. Eddie's about my body mass index. I'm around 25, 26 kilograms per meter squared. So in other words, he wasn't a fat bastard. So Eddie came in. He had welts on his cheeks where the mask was digging into him. And he had a bit of necrosis of the bridge of his nose where the mask was digging into him. And he walked in and I said, Eddie, Peter Farrell, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. It's obviously inconvenient, the mask. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, but, you know, a bit of Vaseline and so forth. And I said, wow. I said, the machine's like a freight train. He said, oh, yeah, well, what I did was I moved my bed to abut the garage wall. I drilled a hole in the wall between the bedroom and the garage, and I put the machine out with the car. I said, wow, this is pretty inconvenient. He said, well, okay, let me tell you what my life was like. I'd go to bed for 10 hours. I'd get up in the morning. I'd go to breakfast with my wife. I'd fall asleep. I'd nod off. I'd hop in the car, first set of traffic lights. I'd nod off. I was so sleep deprived. And then I'd go into work. I couldn't sit in a chair. I'd go into spontaneous rapid eye movement sleep, literally go into REM sleep. He said, so I spent the whole day just staying awake. I didn't do a tap of work. I said, what's the company's name? Anyway.'" He said I didn't do a tap of work and then I'd drive home falling asleep at traffic lights I'd get home couldn't go to the opera a movie out to dinner with friends because I'd simply just immediately fall off to sleep I'd go to bed for 10 hours and wake up feeling like sh not sleeping and that was my cycle He said the first night I went on this i dreamt for the first time in 15 years and he said I got up in the morning I didn't fall asleep at breakfast I drove into work without falling asleep at the traffic lights one night And he said, I was able to work for the first time in years. Again, I said, what's the name of the company? Anyway, um, and then I drove home without falling asleep. He said, bottom line, I'd sleep on hot coals if I could have that result. I said, okay, so this thing, this gargantuan Rube Goldberg thing actually works. And I looked at it and I said, you know, in six months we can have something that's, well, a fifth the size. A tenth of the noise levels and that's exactly what we did we've got a device today called an air mini which weighs 0.7 pounds not even your dog can hear it but the device is literally that big it's like a grande cappuccino
9: that's saving something much bigger couples being able to sleep in
8: the same bed I mean snoring is just so off-putting you can't sleep next to somebody who's going i mean it's it's not the next bedroom it's the next zip code it's really bad so it breaks up more marriages than financial and adultery and all the rest of it i mean it's hugely significant the four main causes of death a cardiac disease, cancer, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and stroke in that order. Sleep disorder breathing affects all of them. Stroke, 75% of patients that have had a stroke have sleep disorder breathing. Was it causal? We don't have enough data to know. But you know what? If you've had the stroke and you don't treat the sleep disorder breathing, you're not going to get out of rehab. You're gone. COPD, a third of the patients, There are 320 million people roughly in the country, 10% of them have COPD, and 30% of those have sleep disorder breathing, and if you have COPD with sleep apnea, you're gonna be in for an acute exacerbation and you may not get out and you'll be back in in 30 days unless you get it treated. Cancer, we have in vitro data, lab data, and we have animal data, And we have prospective clinical data showing that if you have a solid tumour, I think it applies to blood borne tumours like leukemias and lymphomas, we just don't have the data. If you have a solid tumour like colorectal, breast, prostate, lung, etc., if you have severe sleep apnea, your time to death is reduced by 80%. 80%. So, in other words, let's say colorectal cancer. From diagnosis to death is roughly an average of five years. There'll be early deaths, late deaths, it's like a Gaussian distribution. If you have severe sleep apnea, it's one year. One year, and we know the mechanism. Cancer likes a low oxygen and a low pH, an acidic environment with low oxygen. That's what cancer likes so it can grow. So you take cancer cells in a lab and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen, the cancer cells go nuts. And there is a a mouse model, a guy, David Gazal, at the University of Chicago. He's got these little black mice which live two years domestically. Give them melanoma. It's about a year. You take that melanoma colony into a lab, and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen. A matter of weeks, they're all dead. And the same happens in humans. And then you've got heart disease. 50% of patients with heart disease, any form of it, have sleep disorder breathing. I mean, you go like this on the heart. Imagine what it's doing to your heart. It's the number one cause of high blood pressure. Untreated sleep apnea is the number one cause, and that's on the NIH website and it's been there for 13 years. You'd think you'd be manning the barriers.
9: Peter is 76 years old and I wondered if he had a sense of urgency about these literally life and death matters that the world doesn't know about in the lives and money that could be saved with this simple treatment.
8: Well, I think you do. I mean, I you know but there's no point in beating your head against the brick wall. You just sort of keep going and try to get the word out. I mean, that's all you can do. You know. But it is um it's underappreciated, and I feel like a missionary. I mean, it's, it's crazy that in this day and age that something as simple as sleep-disordered breathing is not being addressed. Our main goal was education. And great job on that, Alex
0: and Joey. And what a story. And again, we love to tell these stories about better health care at lower costs, And always, innovators are out there, entrepreneurs are out there solving problems. And Dr. Farrell was dead right uh, that in the end, our entrepreneurs are risk mitigators. And they don't want to lose their capital, and they want to solve a problem. And all that creativity is harnessed to solve that problem. A great story, Dr. Peter Farrell's story, and sleep apnea, and the solution to sleep apnea here with Our American Stories. And now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica.
10: In 2012, for reasons known only to Providence, I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at nine in the morning. And his editor tells him he needs, on his desk by 12 o'clock, at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task. And it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town. And the reason he was at the thrift store was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki color chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red-colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So I said, what did you pay for it? $15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what. And I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter, and I start it to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm gonna go through the list. Some of them are a little redundant, in fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power cords. Two, no cords connecting to a printer. 3. No cords connecting to an external hard drive. 4. No cords connecting to anything. 5. No software to install. 6. No software to download. 10. A typewriter can't crash. 11. No fatal system error messages. 24. No font to choose. Twenty-five, no font color to choose, unless you have a two-tone ribbon. Twenty-six, no font size to choose. Twenty-seven, you don't have to format your font. Twenty-nine, no print button to push. Thirty-three, no leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. Thirty-four, The typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39. I like baseball. Shirley Povich used the typewriter. Need I say more? 40. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the Internet for all the world to see whether you want it to or not. Typewriters are secure and private. 41. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They're not always correct anyway. 51. If you're working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key You won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. 53. No mouse. 56. You don't get interrupted with emails. 57. No one tries to friend you. 67. When I am working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. 71. When I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely if ever do, you take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy even if you're not old. 79 You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83 If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. Another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. You never have to reboot your typewriter.
0: And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica, 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer. I still have one, I don't use it, but my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, the, the envelope is typed, he is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago, but my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of the Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy in the business for 50-plus years and a legend. He sent us... 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer, here on Our American Stories.